fresh out the oven it's cinema bums i'm wade and i'm emmett cinema bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time today we are concluding our mini series x23 about fox's x-men films we will fully spoil today's film and we will not spoil any future entries in the series because there are none <laughs> emmett how are you doing i'm doing great wait how are you doing i'm doing great it's done it's done we did it amazing and we we have to talk about this one but we've now seen all 13 movies in the x-men series it's wild it's truly crazy i can't believe it took me till this point in my life to do so and four months of podcasts <laughs> to get to this point well listen that's not the only reason i'm doing good it's also because today we're honored to have a special guest he's a priest a president and an influencer perhaps best known to our audience for his work as showrunner on disney plus's upcoming reboot series the trial of the air buddies please welcome (laughs) patrick turner uh hello uh glad to be here thank you for being here father you can just call me Reverend. It's okay. <laughs> um, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Uh, happy to be a part of the Cinema Bums experience. Speaking of, what is your previous experience? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I've been looking forward to to uh, this question because I uh, this is my first uh, experience. I have not seen any of the other movies. <laughs> <laughs> no way no Wait, way. you've never seen yeah. any of you haven't seen the deadpool movies well i've seen yeah i've seen the deadpool movies um, okay but in terms of like x-men this yeah this is really the first sort of uh mutant experience i guess <laughs> you haven't seen god's gift to superhero movies x2 <laughs> no i have not but i uh i have watched or listen to the uh, the podcast episode on X2. So, uh, what about the Wolverine yeah. movies? Uh, I can't say I've seen the Wolverine movies either. Okay, um, let me ask you this. From watching this movie, how do you imagine the rest of the franchise is like? That is a great question. Um, well... I, I don't know if this one like sets a uh, a low bar for for entry or if I've heard good things about uh, some of the X Men movies uh, like Logan and Deadpool was fun. This is the first one. Now you said you you said you'd seen it before. What what led you to watch it more than one time? So I had heard a lot about this movie like going into it. I guess mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of like the very uh rigorous road to production that it went through just from talking to uh like some friends and hearing like oh it's a a horror movie uh but with superheroes that sounds neat and if there's one thing i can say about this movie it is it is neat it is something okay so today we are talking about the new mutants the final movie in the x-men series And I would like to start off by saying, re-Emmett's point last week, it is so refreshing to see a movie in this series have an accurate title. If we just look back at these movies, The Last Stand, movie 3 of 13. First Class, 
movie five of 13. Apocalypse, <laughs> several movies after. Is he Logan or is he the Wolverine? Dark Phoenix had no problem seeing it in regular light. Now this movie, on the other hand, if there's one thing I can say for this movie, it's that all of these new mutants are 100% new. I have never seen any of these mutants before. (laughs) On a scale of one to six, how new would you say these mutants are? Of of one to six? Yeah, because that's how many characters are in the movie. Um, I had never seen any of these mutants before. I'd say, yeah, they're new. Okay, this movie is about Danny Moonstar. Yes. Who is a young Native American girl who wakes up at the start of the movie to find that her reservation is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. She sees her father get mauled to death while she's hiding, and then she passes out and she wakes up in an asylum, old mental hospital type deal that is run and entirely staffed by one doctor, Dr. Reyes. Uh, It's just her and five teenagers. She's also a mutant. Yes. Yes. It's a little bit into that we discover this. But she says that it's a place for mutants to learn how to control their powers when they're teenagers. And she tells them that if things go well, they can go on to her supervisor's facility they can graduate to another program and so the movie is kind of like a harry potter ish teens in school fighting and making out sort of movie and then is kind of like a horror movie as we see danny's power is that she can make people's nightmares come to life and eventually a sort of giant nightmare attacks the school and they all band together to stop it is that a somewhat accurate (laughs) summation of this movie yes sounds about right this film was directed by josh boone who had only directed two films before the rom-com stuck in love and the massively popular young adult movie the fault in our stars unbelievable he is currently directing cbs's all accesses the stand the series about stephen king's the stand that's on right now with Whoopi Goldberg in it? Well, Fault in Our Stars was massively popular. Uh, so it, w- it was a surprise to hear that he also directed that and then this, because in terms of style, they seem kind of kind of different. They do the famous Fault in Our Stars scene in this. Which is them fighting a giant bear. <laughs> well, the second most famous scene, which is them like laying in the grass together and like admitting their feelings for the first time. It's also done in this movie. With different that's characters, tr- which is pretty wild. That makes a lot more sense now. I feel like definitely, I feel like that's why all the stuff in this movie that is like teen romance, that's like all the the stuff about just them interacting is more compelling than any of the plot. Like mm-hmm. all the character development feels like more fun than any of the forward momentum stuff. It was written by the director, Josh Boone, along with Nate Lee, who is primarily a producer, produced a lot of the Jackass movies. He also produced the Stan TV show and is writing that alongside him. So that's his other writing credit. Music by Mark Snow from The X-Files, running one hour and 34 minutes. So this movie had a budget of $80 million, Mm -hmm. which is shocking to hear. It means it would have needed to make $160 million to break even 
mm-hmm. and it made 46 million. Now, the thing we need to clarify, this movie was released in August 2020. It was the second movie to be released into theaters after some theaters in America reopened. That's partially why. In terms of the stats, it's the third lowest budget in the series, just above of Deadpool 60 million and the original X-Men 75. This had 80. And it is the lowest box office in the series. The next was Dark Phoenix with 252 million. It's funny how all of these things have like expectations and feel different because this movie was considered to be like, like not at all did good, but did like a little bit better than people expected. Wow. Which is funny that like Dark Phoenix with $252 million was like a humongous disappointment, like the biggest flop of 2019. And then in 2020, this movie making 46 million is like pretty decent. Yeah, only only losing 35 million dollars on the movie seems like a good thing in this time. It also didn't play in New York and Los Angeles, where theaters have still not been reopened. Movies make as much in New York and Los Angeles as they do in the rest of America, generally wow. speaking. It has been tangentially reported for all of these movies. We don't have any home video release, but there have been a lot of reports that this movie is maybe weirdly doing very well on like digital rentals. Yeah, I saw an article that said it was a sleeper hit, that it's like made a lot of money back on digital rentals. Um, and I actually saw an article just yesterday that said for the last week, it was the most rented movie that it had beat Tenet for being Whoa. the most rented movie wow. of... Well, that's pretty cool. Good for them. And that makes sense because I'm sure like not many people could go see this in theaters or were willing yeah. to risk risk it for this movie in particular, you know? Yeah, true. It had a mixed reception. The It was generally considered to be competent but generic. It has a 43 on Metacritic, which is tied with Dark Phoenix for the second lowest critical reception in the series the lowest being x-men origins wolverine with 40 something worth noting about this though is that this movie has less than half of the amount of reviews that every other movie in the series has disney didn't let reviewers see this movie Disney is trying to bury this film. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. A, a sign of bad faith. Something that almost never happens. What you will see a lot when a studio thinks a movie is bad is that they'll let people, critics, see it like a week ahead of time, but they'll say the review, the reviews can go up like as the movie comes out. So, or like a day before, so people can't read reviews before they buy their tickets. But for this movie, they didn't send critics digital screeners of it to watch which is what all other movies were doing in the pandemic. And they also didn't hold socially distanced press screenings for it. They just didn't show any advanced screenings of it at all. Yeah, here's the quote I picked. This alludes to what Patrick alluded to earlier, that this film had a very troubled production history, which we'll get into. Amy Nicholson of the New York Times in her review said, The New Mutant spent three years on ice before being allowed to escape into the slowest summer season in a century. That's fitting for a film that's all build up and no bang. (laughs) Ouch. Yeah, not sure I necessarily agree, but um, it was released August 28th, 2020. Emmett, what were some other movies that were released in 2020? Okay, 2020 in film. Here we go. Uh, Just so you know, as we said, this movie made $46 million. So not very much, but something to remember about the year 2020 
is that film was a little different this year. It's the first year since 1995 not to have a film gross over $500 million in the box office. So the first time in 25 years. It's also the first year in history that only five of the highest grossing um, films were North American. The other five this year were from China or Japan. The 800, which is the highest grossing film of 2020, is the first ever non-Hollywood film to be the highest grossing film of the year. So we have, in the highest grossing films of 2020, The 800, My People, My Homeland, Bad Boys for Life, Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba, The Movie, Mugen Train. Um, That's all one movie. (laughs) Tenet, Sonic the Hedgehog, Doolittle, Zhang Zia, Birds of Prey, and The Sacrifice. Demon Slayer is a Japanese film. Uh, my People, My Homeland, Zhang Zia, and The Sacrifice are all Chinese mo- are all Chinese films, along with uh, the Eight Hundred. So, any any thoughts on the films on the English language films of this year that you might have seen? Uh, did you see Bad Boys for Life, Patrick? Uh, I did not. I really wanted to go see uh, the Sonic movie uh, oh, for yeah. Valentine's Day, uh, but unfortunately, I did not make the plan to do that so it really does feel like that came out in like a different year than 2020 Mm -hmm. like i know i guess we're we really are coming up on like the uh the year anniversary of the sonic movie like um bad boys for life like all those movies that came out like pre-pandemic but like still still 2020 it Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like a different environment both for film and for sort of the culture i guess for sure um did you see tenet i haven't yet but um the trailers look cool i hope i get the chance to uh did you see doolittle or uh birds of prey i you know i don't know if i've seen any movies that came out in 2020 (laughs) other than this one which uh may be a problem you can be honest with us patrick is this the only movie you've ever seen (laughs) i I swear, guys, I've taken an uh, <laughs> intro to film at uh, Appalachian State University. I've, I've seen a movie before. <laughs> Every week of the class is watching the new mutants. <laughs> I think it would hold up, personally. I think this movie has layers to it, like an ogre. This is the part where I would usually say what awards, what won awards this year. But of course, we have not had the best given out yet. So we will have to wait a little while to see what wins in 2020. Should we drop the predictions? Yeah, let's drop the predictions. Patrick, what do you think is going to win Best Picture? Well, judging from the one movie I saw uh, in 2020, New Mutants has got to take it. I mean, <laughs> All right, you were right here for New Mutants for Best Pick. Yeah, I think this would probably absolutely sweep it across the board. Yeah, I don't know. What do you do? Best Picture, Best Director, Wolf Spain for Best Actress. Not really a leading male actor in this movie. But you could get a supporting male. You could get a supporting male out of the kid from yeah. Stranger Things. For after that Cole speech. I mean, come on. He's giving you everything. I'll come back to this uh, this podcast after, after the awards and see see how this pans out. All right. Let me ask you, Patrick. The New Mutants, flop or bop? You know, I <laughs> with this being uh, my first sort of uh, entry into the X-Men cinematic universe, I, I really wanted to give it a, uh, a bop, but I, I got to go with the flop. It, 
It didn't uh, didn't hit me. Emmett, flopper bop? Bop. It goes out on a bop. This is the best series (laughs) ever put to film. I take back everything that I took back before. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) This series forever. Ken Burke genre productions. (laughs) Now I don't know if you are being ironic about the bop or not. This movie slaps, son. Wade? Yeah. Flopper Bob. I'm really conflicted. I'm more conflicted than I've been for any other movie in this series. Because, like, is this movie bad? Yes. (laughs) Did I enjoy every moment of watching it? Like, 80%. And there was something, like, weirdly compelling about it to me. Would I want to watch it again? No. Would I watch it again? Probably. And you probably will have to because I'm going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, certainly when we do our Oscar recap, we'll have to watch it for every category. <laughs> have I given movies much, much better than this a flop? <laughs> yes. Having said that, I think I would give it a bop. Hell Yeah. I don't know where to even start. What okay? What was your general impression of this movie, Patrick? I think for me, I was really drawn in by like the initial premise of oh, a superhero horror movie, but then also like it's like sort of a a coming of age story, like the other X Men mm-hmm. movies, and it's like it deals with like mental health and trauma in an interesting way that you wouldn't really expect like a superhero movie to. But I don't know if it really. I don't really know if it does what it sets out to in like a very efficient mm. or like powerful way. I I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I I did watch it twice, so it <laughs> I, I can't I can't hate it too much, but I think it it has like a a certain charm to it, but it it definitely feels like it sort of Misses out on some potential. Okay, the coolest thing about this movie, no reference to any other X-Men movie at all. That is kind of an accident of later production disasters, apparently. They talk about Professor X and the X-Men at one point. I guess, but it's like, it's there's no, you don't see anybody, you don't get any cameos, mm-hmm. you don't get any of that. There's no real tie-in to it. It's just like, here we are, completely new. That's cool. I like that. Uh, we get all these cool young kids, and I feel like they finally get into the what it would be like to have these powers and not really be able to control them and like interacting with people. Because we see Rogue like kind of going through that in a couple of the movies, but we mm-hmm. don't see a lot of the interaction between like multiple people who have it. Now, of course, this movie has five young characters. Like it is just but it's also it's, it feels kind of like a play it feels like an annie baker play set in a farmhouse with a bunch of people who also have mutant powers and then it, until it hits its third act i dig the part about like the bear as a symbol for trauma that's pretty cool but also like it becomes a, a thing of protection to her at the end whenever she powers through it or overcomes it or breathes with it or whatever well that's important because this movie is about something it's worth mentioning yeah yeah, yeah. it's about that everyone has two bears inside of them mm-hmm. as they stayed in the opening and in the closing <laughs> yeah this movie so as we've alluded to several times this movie has a hugely troubled production history you can tell because it has all the hallmarks of like an incomplete movie 
which are that it's 90 minutes, which is the minimum a movie has to be in order to be released. There's a good amount of voiceover explaining things that aren't totally clear in the movie. There is so much computer screens. <laughs> like, so much of the movie is, like, reading emails or watching a security cam footage or w- watching a message load. Like, at least five minutes of those 90 minutes are, like, graphics that someone made in iMovie to pad out the time a little bit. It feels very uh, Artemis Fowl. That's Hashtag true. Remember the name. Remember the name. And I counted this. Within the first 20 minutes of this movie, there are five flashbacks to the opening scene. (laughs) That's crazy, because the opening scene was not that long at all. No, it was 15 minutes ago. In those 15 minutes, five separate times, they flash back to what happened in the opening scene. That's really wild. You you spend more time seeing the first scene in flashbacks than you do in the first scene the first time you see it. This movie was also like, I guess has been and still is being called a horror movie. I think horror is a little bit like, what did you, what did you guys think of the scares in this? There's not many, I would say. From like a directorial standpoint, they're, they're definitely like trying to go for the horror aspect. Just, I mean, like. Yeah. Just in terms of like the setting, it's this old asylum for for some reason, and you know they're playing up fears and all that. But I don't think, other than like maybe one or two scenes, this the scares in the movie really aren't aren't super scary. Like they don't they feel like the bare minimum of like a horror of the horror genre. I think this movie shows you some creepy things, but it doesn't really have any jump scares. And it also doesn't have like a horror movie premise. It like shows you some horror movie stuff in a couple like with the CGI and like with the the creepy guys that come after Ileana are like to me the scariest thing in this. But they're just like creepy to look at. You know, it's not like they don't jump out. They don't ever there's never like a moment where Mm -hmm. they jump at you or they like appear like you scan the room and then all of a sudden it's there. It's like very gently introduced if that makes sense there's not really a feeling of dread either yeah it seems like there isn't really much sense of like what is the momentum of this story what is she doing at the beginning our our young hero she's told that she is the only living survivor of the attack on her reservation Mm -hmm. and she's told that she is a mutant in a hospital for mutants to discover their powers and then she doesn't know her powers yet and then she tries to leave and then she tries to kill herself and then she just hangs out yes because after she tries to kill herself she meets wolf's bane Maisie williams the Uh other stark sister coming into this series at the last minute to rescue it coming in and being like in a gentle scottish accent telling her maybe we both should have jumped and that's like somehow the most romantic thing this girl is so emo let me just tell you danny moonstar is the most she is she is in her feels all the time and i know like bad stuff happened right but her entire reservation like, <laughs> was destroyed she saw her father mauled <laughs> yeah but it was her own fault and i think she really needs to take some responsibility and quit being such a mope 
It only happened like a few days ago. Like exactly, get over it. You know, like yeah, it it is serious. I was struck in this movie. Everyone has like tragically killed their parents, which is something that Phoenix had done in the previous movie. And it's like they don't all have to have tragically killed their parents. You know, they could all they could some of them could have other backstories, but they all like. Let's start with the characters. There are six characters, so I thought we could just go through them one by one. Say how we feel about the performance, how we feel about their backstory, and for each of them, try and describe the accent they are doing. <laughs> because the other thing that we have not mentioned is that everyone in this movie is doing an insane accent. And they are all different. Okay, so let's start with Blue Hunt playing Danny Moonstar. I think she's all right as a lead. I didn't really feel particularly like attached to her or her struggle because i feel like whereas the movie i really feel like it took the time to sort of develop its other characters uh danny like despite being the the primary character and us her her trauma being the first thing we see it really like didn't feel super effective and maybe it's because they keep showing it to us uh over and over again to make sure we don't forget but i i just didn't really feel like like we meet her dad and we see her reservation as it's burning and then boom they're gone that's that's the last we see of them and then we just sort of walk through the asylum with danny and we see like this very like weird environment through her eyes uh but it it still just sort of feels I don't know. I I feel like there's some disconnect between her and the audience somehow. I would agree in saying that she is like all right in this. I think she has a couple of good moments, but I also think it could suffer from the fact that it's the writing and it's the main character and everybody else gets to just like kind of do their weird thing. And she has to kind of be like the straight shooter that the movie is built around. I actually think that she's really good in this in sort of the Mark Hamill way. Mm. where like you always know what's going on with her mm-hmm. like i never like thought she had a weird moment in the entire movie that's true and i think she sells certainly a lot of like the romance and the teen angst of this movie mm-hmm. which the other actors are struggling with more to some degree but i do agree she is it is a classic case of like She's the everyman in a strange world. So she is like by far the most boring character of all six of them. Yeah. Moving right along. Maisie Williams as Rain Sinclair, whose mutant name is Wolf Spain. She's, as Emmett mentioned, uh, Arya Stark on Game of Thrones. She is English in real life and playing Scottish. The accent I thought was pretty, pretty serviceable. I, I don't know. I didn't think it was too bad. Pretty entertaining. I think she's definitely sort of the emotional core of the mm. movie. Uh, she she's most certainly one of the few like nice and likable characters, whereas the others are like very intentionally written to be uh, not nice and sort of standoffish in a teen angst sort of way. But I liked her. I liked how uh, she is. The second character we're introduced to when she's just randomly staring through the vents uh, down at Danny when she first wakes up (laughs) five minutes into the movie. 
and nobody comments on it. <laughs> nobody says anything. And then again, like 10 minutes later, when she shows up in her wolf form for the first time, nobody oh, yeah. says anything about that either. <laughs> She's just running alongside. She's just there, you know, as a wolf. And like later on, there's a comment. I think Ileana says like, oh, what's up, doggy? Uh, and then... <laughs> That's like the only hint we really get. Like, oh, she's the wolf from earlier. But that's a good point. They never explain that her power is to turn into a wolf. It's you not just until, kind like... of get it. You just kind of get it. There's randomly a wolf there, and then she is a human later. Presumably, the budget wasn't enough for us to see the anamorph style transformation between the two. Maybe that's for the best. I don't I don't know if I could uh handle any like Animorphs body horror from this movie. <laughs> um but yeah, I'd say she was definitely uh one of my favorite characters of the of the cast. As far as Maisie Williams in this goes, I would say there's two important things about it. First important thing, is she from the sixteen fifties? She got burned with a witch label by her village priest. I mean, I know like scotland is a few hundred years back in time from us but still i think that's pretty i think that's pretty primitive and i think it's pretty messed up we have scottish listeners (laughs) not anymore (laughs) the other really important thing is there's a moment earlier on in this movie where there's kind of been some conversation and a little bit of like eyes making between danny and rain but you're like did I really just see that in an X-Men movie? Are they really going to make the subtextual textual? And then do you have a shot where Rain is just watching a movie where there's two girls making out and you're like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I guess they are. I think her performance is brilliant. Yeah, I forgot about that subtle storytelling <laughs> where she's daydreaming watching the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode that features two women kissing. Major plot of the this movie is that Danny and... Uh, Wolf Spain become a couple. Mm-hmm. And I also definitely for sure did not think that was going to happen mm-hmm. at the beginning, just based on like how conditioned we are from these X-Men movies that like, there's always going to be a lot of homoeroticism, but it's never like actually a thing. And I felt very confident that Wolf Spain was gay, but I didn't know. I thought for sure it was going to be a thing where like, she kisses Danny and Danny's like, oh, I I just wanted to be friends. And there's some sort of like tragedy like that, you know? So like the fact yeah, that this movie yeah. so like plain spokenly just does it and it isn't like a thing in any capacity is cool. Surprised me at least. Yeah. None of the other ex, like none of the other new mutants comment on that at all. Uh, who else is on this list? Yes. Next we have Anya Taylor-Joy as Ileana Rasputin, <laughs> the character Magic. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy also had a huge year this last year, primarily with the New Mutants, but also with the Queen's Gambit. Not to be confused with our Queen Gambit, Taylor Kitsch from X-Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> our problematic Queen Gambit. Problematic Queen. Uh, Patrick, could you first describe to me the accent that Anya Taylor-Joy is doing? The accent and the vibe of her character. Ileana Rasputin is uh, Russian. Um, <laughs> you don't say. She she is giving like the middle schoolers like first Russian accent, like the 
if I had to like give it a title while like basically just being a character from Mean Girls. That being said, I I do love to hate her. I uh, think her power is easily the like most unique and uh, interesting visually of the mm-hmm. New Mutants. Like her weird like magic sword arm thing, and like how she can sort of jump through limbo for some reason to uh, like teleport and stuff. And then there's like her little pet dragon Lockheed. Um, now, wait, can you describe a little bit more about the pet dragon? Oh, right. Um, so <laughs> the first time we see the pet dragon, it is not a pet dragon. It's a uh, hand puppet that she wears on her hand for the majority of the movie. And <laughs> she talks to it. And, like, she speaks back to herself in, in like, the voice. Like, the, she does a little puppet voice. She does, like, oh, hello. It's easily, like, one of the strangest things because nobody says anything about it. I feel like there's a lot of strange things in this movie, but that's that's definitely up there. And then, like, later in the movie, it's, like, oh, lol. Little CG dragon on her shoulder. It's uh, it's a real dragon. It's it's not just a puppet. Yeah, she has like the only get hype superhero moment in this entire movie, which is like very silly, but also like the only cool thing in this movie. Where she says, "I'm not going to do the accent," but someone is like, "You can't fight that. It's magic," and she says, "It's magic. So am I." And then she jumps through a portal and grows like a sword arm and uh, her dragon turns real and she attacks a big bear. She's like a soul caliber character. She mm-hmm. is so cool. They were just like, Anya Taylor-Joy, queen, we love you. Do whatever you want. Yes, the accent is perfect. That is yes. what they said. Yes, no, we, we, love, we love that the dragon is a puppet that she talks to. Yeah, no, go go for it, please. Yes. It makes no sense. It's completely it's completely absurd. But it's so good. And she's such such a good bully. She's such a good villain because you're like she's actually crazy. I the people talk about this as a horror movie, as we said, not a ton of horror. I also want to be clear, calling this a movie is a little bit strong. Like the level of movie making on display here is like abc family original movie it is like so haphazardly and cheaply shot and written and acted like it does not feel at all like something released by any studio to be viewed as a film Uh, sci-fi channel uh, like pilot or something yeah it really feels like a tv pilot you know i love anya taylor joy I have nothing but love for her. I'm so glad she got to do this and have fun. I think she's just awful in it. I think she's so bad. She's like so miscast in a way that it's it feels like a very theater way. Yeah, you can just play this role that you would never play and you're not good at playing because like you're a good actor and that'll be fun. Right? She, to me, was like so thoroughly unconvincing as a mean girl. She's also like the popular girl, but also like her thing is wearing a sock puppet that she talks to all the time. Also, her superpower is teleporting and having a magic sword arm. Everyone else's like nightmare backstory is of like when their powers happened and they hurt people they loved. 
Her backstory is about a bunch of alien monsters attacking her. Yeah, creepy ass Slenderman guys. Yeah, like a ton of Slendermen in smiley face masks who attacked her. And in order to get away from that, she created hell, which she teleports to sometimes. (laughs) Like, I just. (laughs) And then she killed all of them. How do you get there? It's nuts. I don't know. And she's also somehow Colossus's younger sister. And the accent, the accent comes and goes. Not the most egregious in this movie of sometimes having the accent and sometimes not, but the second most egregious for sure. This is the thing about the movie that feels like a cult classic, sort of like infamous performance, you know, like something that would be like beloved in some circles yeah for how like kitschy and a big swing and like a weird role for a wonderful actress to be playing it is okay charlie heaton playing samuel sam guthrie slash cannonball so talk about this man who who is uh jonathan from stranger things in this movie he's doing an accent and he sure has a backstory when I first watched this movie, I was not expecting him to be in it. So mm-hmm. when I first saw him on screen, I was like, oh, it's the it's guy from Stranger Things. That's cool. He is the only like other nice character, mm-hmm. I would say, <laughs> uh, along with Maisie Williams as Rain, um, in that like he has maybe three lines where he is like at least like standing up for Danny and saying like, oh, hey. You should like come with us to the roof or whatever. We're gonna hang out. Or like, hey, Eliana, please leave her alone. Um, he's from Kentucky. He's a coal miner. And, and what he... what year would you say this movie takes place? <laughs> <laughs> Judging by the computers, I mean, at least like current day, like maybe a few years ahead, something like that. His country accent is like so so unique. I don't I don't really know. How to even describe it? Like it's, it's just, it's really something. He's also an English actor in real life. Yeah, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I could guarantee that he has never been to Kentucky. (laughs) I think that definitely like explains the performance a lot more. Um, Other than that, I I did like his performance. I I think we didn't really get a lot of screen time for him like compared to Mm. other characters he seems like one that they developed and that they gave him a backstory they gave him like some scenes but not very many moments i especially like uh when they are introducing his character for the first time when rain and danny are walking through the cafeteria talking out loud about everybody's backstories as they are within earshot (laughs) Uh, Danny says, ah, poor guy. And he just sort of looks up and looks down back at his food very sadly. Like, yeah, I got it rough. His performance in this, despite the accent's best efforts, is pretty good. (laughs) I think he's pretty good in this. I think the accent is unfathomable. (laughs) Go watch. Just look up the scene his monologue from this where he talks about the coal mining accident just look it up and see how many different accents he's doing in that one moment which is also the heart of his entire character you will see both the terrible accents and the great acting side by side 
I also want to say back on the Anna Taylor Joy thing, though, she goes through this thing about halfway through where you're like, oh, I guess we like her now. Like, there's a certain point where we're like, oh, we just like everybody now, but we haven't really had the scene where we decide why. But we just decided, oh, we do. We like them now. She's also very actively racist. Yeah. Which we should talk about. I mean, it's not portrayed as like a good thing, but she's just like a major plot point is that she is throwing like Native American slurs at Danny throughout the whole movie. That's true. Until Danny like stands up to her and then she like gets a little bit of respect for her. Yeah, I agree. I like Charlie Heaton in this. He's very kind. The, uh, the accent is so weird it's a revolving door of an accent like truly like 50 percent of the time it's not there and then it is and you're shocked i will also say he made me uh, cry from laughing twice in this movie which is like something that hasn't happened in a long time so i love this movie i also want to say we're not uh, i'll speak for myself no i'll speak for the podcast we're not ragging on coal miners there's nothing silly about being a coal miner. God bless the miners and the work they do. It's just funny in this movie because the level this movie is operating at is like, it's the gold rush. We got to move to California to go and dig in the mines. And us burly boys are going to go dig in the mines. And one day there's going to be an accident that's going to kill everyone. And it feels so out of place in this like, very Mean Girls-esque 2017 movie about a bunch of teens having issues. Charlie Heaton walked off of the audition for Devil All the Time, where he lost the role of a young man from Appalachia to another English actor. (laughs) Another two English actors, honestly. He walked off of the audition for Devil All the Time and straight on to set for this movie without changing his shirt, without changing his accent, and just was like, hey, can you use me? I've just tragic Appalachian backstory. And they were like, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Okay, let's move right along because we truly have so much more to get through. (laughs) Uh, Henry Zaga as Roberto Bobby DaCosta, Sunspot. I'm pretty sure they call him Berto, though. Were they calling him Bobby? I think they were were calling calling him him Berto. Berto. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I heard. This Okay, so this is interesting. From the comics, he's supposed to be the youngest one. And in this, he's Mm. like the the hottest, the hunkiest, the the oldest one. He's the jock. The rich kid, too. Yeah. Um, But also, you know, the man with feelings in another sense. Mm-hmm. Also, can we talk about how it definitely seemed like he and old Sammy Samuel were there was like romantic tension between them as well? Oh, yeah, were definitely. you picking up on this too, Patrick? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And there's a moment in the finale because the almost the only times we see either of them is that it's just them together. Mm-hmm. They're like hanging out doing boy stuff, like doing laundry and cooking, but it's like always late at night and it's just the two of them and they have these very like emotionally vulnerable conversations. And there's a moment in the finale where Alberto like stops and looks over his shoulder back at cannonball and like it really seems like he's about to say i love you and then he just says something else i forget what it was it was like watch her or something yeah (laughs) but it it definitely felt like the moment they had to have dubbed over that part there's no way there's no way (laughs) if you watch his lips he says i love you (laughs) 
I I do really love um like all the all the moments between him uh his character and Sam uh it feels like very subtle but very very genuine like I feel like they're they're just a couple of bros hanging out uh having a good time uh having these like deep conversations you know I love that for them but other than that I think I think on paper like that his backstory is pretty good but in execution it was like okay when they developed his character it was in this weird like half romance half horror scene between him and like fake Ilya. i don't know i just i thought it was okay yeah i think he's the one who comes out of this movie the most unscathed like the one who you least think about as being bad when you think about this movie. So good job. He's randomly naked at the very end of the movie. He gets stomped on by a bear. He like burns all of his clothes off and then he's like holding a big wooden sign to protect his decency. Lots of uh, sexuality in this movie. Mm-hmm. Much There's more two, than the other. Two shower scenes, which I was like, Disney, really? Yeah, this is the first Disney movie. There are two shower scenes. There's also the scene that we were mentioning where Sunspot, who oh, is yeah, dating, Sunspot. who is kind of dating Magic, like finds her in a pool, and they're about to make out. And then she's like, "You got to find me." And then she teleports away. And then he sees like a ghost of his dead girlfriend who he killed by burning her up. And it is like a big plot point of this movie, too, that he can't have sex because he gets so hot that he catches fire when he tries to. Which, is it horrific or is it tragic or is it funny? This movie can't really settle on one. (laughs) That's true. Okay, the last one is Alice Braga as Dr. Reyes. I think she's really good in this. Um, In like a really difficult role. I mean, few things in this movie make any sense, but her character makes no sense whatsoever. She she is so she's such a strange arc. She, I what's she doing? She's just like she runs a research facility by herself with five kids at it. What she really she really there like buying groceries for all of these kids and like I don't know making sure things run right around the house. I mean, the kids are old enough to make their own food and stuff, but they still Birdo makes it for everyone. That's what we see. Oh, that's true. That's true. Maybe that's why they have to run everything themselves. She's too busy doing work on her computer. Was this a film about absentee parents? Well, that's like one of the weird things that we're brushing up against here is that this movie is taking inspiration from a lot of like John Hughes, classic high school movies, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't take place in a high school. It takes place in a gigantic asylum where only five people live. Yeah. So it's like when literally the only people in the world are the archetypes and there's no one else there. Like, it's just a little weird. It It is. There was a point in this movie where I was like, is she really just in a simulated reality that she created for herself in a coma? What, what's with this wall? You know, I was like, is it a fake wall? Is she inside like some sort of con- construct or something? I don't know. I really want to know how she got this job. Like, it's clear she's qualified <laughs> to some extent. I mean, she she has a medical background. She's a doctor. Like, don't they question that at some point? They're like, is she a doctor? Because she was I, over here prescribing hydrochloric Is she really? Because <laughs> they don't know if her like um, 
her therapy uh, methods or like techniques are all that effective, uh, judging from how she, you know, leaves the kids alone and like only interacts with them for one therapy session where she's just saying control uh, for like where she just asks everyone to introduce themselves and tell their backstory. Yeah, she's like, let's really dig into that trauma, but only for back purpose for backstory purposes. Can one of you talk, please? <laughs> I do think that uh she does a pretty pretty good job in the role. I just especially on the second viewing of the movie, I it really dawned on me like, oh, she's running this entire facility by herself. <laughs> um is like actively overthrown like I think twice um, so that the the teens can go off on wacky hijinks. It's just, it's such a strange like job to have. I don't, I, I, I don't really understand how that ever could happen. Um, but I, I think she does a pretty good role uh, overall. Yeah. yeah. It's so weird. I have a lot of questions about this world. It's like an asylum and there is a force field surrounding it, so nobody can escape. And we find out, like, about halfway through the movie that Dr. Reyes is also a mutant and has the power to create force fields. Mm-hmm. So presumably she is creating this force field. But within the house, as you said, it's only her. There's no one else. And so, like, she f- falls asleep for a moment, and then everyone takes advantage of it to go crazy. Also, like, there are a lot of, okay, there are so many directions it feels like this movie could maybe be about to go, and it doesn't go any of them. There's the direction that she is, like, someone who hates mutants, that this could be, like, the school we see in Deadpool 2, where it's, like, conversion therapy for mutants, Mm -hmm. but then we find out that she's a mutant. The other thing is, correct me if I'm wrong, and please say something about this, because I'm really trying to think back on it. Like, the other way this would go is that she, like, seems really nice, but she's really, like, doing something evil. But it doesn't seem like, like, she has real therapy sessions, which aren't effective, but, like, all she's doing with them is, like, sitting them in a room and talking about feelings. And she, like, sometimes has, like, one-on-one physicals and whatever, but she never asks, like, takes them out and, like, asks them to kill a dog or, like gets them really mad so they'll like destroy their power like slips serum into them while they're sleeping or anything that's true that's true like doesn't it seem like she really actually maybe kind of believes in her job yes yeah i do think so i think that's what the whole like last bit with her trying to kill danny is about it's like it's a test of me she that's what she says when she's about to kill her she's like I've got to do this because like, this is what the project requires. And like, I believe in the job here and the job is to like, keep people safe from mutants or like keep mutants safe from themselves. And if you fail in that job, then you have to destroy the consequences. I think that tracks. Um, She definitely does seem to at least genuinely care about doing her job properly. And that like, even so far as to like follow orders to like kill one of these kids that um, is a potential danger to herself and like all the other um, mutants there. It does seem like the movie tries its best to make her seem at least a little evil with like mm-hmm. her uh, little bit about like the rattlesnakes or whatever. And like, yeah, uh, 
I mean, yeah, for the most part, she does seem to genuinely care to some degree. So Yeah, so at the end, as you mentioned, she gets sent like a message that tells her to kill Danny. And so we see her like being very hesitant about it, but going for it, which raised a lot of other questions for me. Like, has she never killed any of these kids before? Because at the beginning, we see like that the yard of the school is just oh, like, that's true. miles and miles of graveyards mm-hmm. of mutants who are in this school who died. And they all have numbers. Mm hmm on the graves instead of names but then there are no numbers in the school she just calls them by their name right like that's the stuff that feels like it's about like a place that is killing mutants and hates mutants but then yeah that is true because like it gives it that feeling like oh this is a super creepy place there's some messed up things going on here but we never get any hints of what might have gone on there before or that she has any contrition about anything that happened there before. We also do see some horrible things happening, but that is to like kids at the Essex Corporation, which is like the parent corporation that the kids here will get to go to if they behave. And but we don't like see what's actually happening at this weird site. Just like on every level, the premise of this movie is so weird. It's so vague. It's like what's going on? It's vaguely sinister. It's like ooh bad thing yeah it's happened here they kill her She's i was trying dead. to remember how that happens she gets noshed on by a giant dream bear well before that she gets like absolutely sliced sliced <laughs> up by, oh, yeah. by wolfsbane which is like easily the most brutal scene in the entire movie yeah mm. the most horrific thing for sure Okay, so wait, this might be a good moment to talk about the background on the comics here. So I did a little bit of research on, because I know you have a lot of stuff on the behind the scenes drama. I will be brief, but let me just say about the New Mutants. They originated in 1982. They were mm-hmm. originally conceived as a spinoff series for the X-Men of being like the younger X-Men where you could focus more on like the, the school interpersonal dating drama, X-Men with an attitude, that sort of thing. They quickly turned into, however, a much darker, twistier, and more science fiction fantasy version of the X-Men, essentially, and went on a lot of adventures in different dimensions, um, in different like reality zones and stuff, um, rather than the X-Men, which are more just standard issue superhero style stuff at that time many of the characters or all of the characters in this movie are from the original comic in the original comic also early on in the run there is a three-part run about the spirit bear which appears which is basically what some of this movie is inspired by danny at one point has a predictive vision that her parents will be uh, mauled by a bear and killed And they disappear one day while on a hunting trip. And she assumes that that is what's happened to him and that they've been killed by an actual bear. And then for years, she is plagued by like nightmares of the same bear haunting, like hunting her and killing her. Later on, she is like, there's like these dreams of this bear gets worse and worse. She knows she's at this point, she's with the new mutants. Uh, She knows that her power is creating manifestations of people's uh, nightmares which is still like what she does in the comics but at a certain point she is getting chased by this bear the bear keeps coming back and at one point she fights with it and cuts it and it bleeds and she realizes it's a real bear and not like a dream construct and then through fighting with it and like a bunch of other stuff she realizes that her parents 
are inside it and are possessed by like this demon bear thing and and it's like this negative energy that has possessed them from like some negative spirits and stuff and so she saves her parents they are rescued the demon bear like dissipates essentially um so it's not so much of it being like her special thing you know she does have the ability to conjure people's nightmares but it's like the bear isn't her specific i mean it is her specific nightmare but it's not like this i think the thing about there being two bears within the heart dueling for dominance is like a different added in thing for the resonance of this movie and i think also the doctor that's an important part is like the doctor is a completely added in element Hmm. um so the part that happens in the comics is she's attacked by the bear the first time she's knocked unconscious. She wakes up in a hospital and like the new mutants are basically blockaded into this hospital during a snowstorm. And that's when the, the giant bear attacks and they like have this fight with it. So that's where some of the imagery as well of the, the creepy hospital in the middle of nowhere comes from. And that's about all that I have on it. All of the characters seem pretty similar, at least like in powers wise, like in their tragic backstories. I think um, I haven't read any of these comics, but they do sound interesting because they they were lauded for like engaging in the topics, like in the darker, twistier topics of like being how unpleasant being a mutant and a teenager at the same time would be uh, in ways that I think this movie flirts with, but doesn't quite pay off. If you're into comics, I'd check them out. Yeah. So in the movie, how they explain her powers is that it reveals your worst nightmare and your deepest secret, which are two very different things. Yes. And also, like, most of their worst nightmares are things that really happen to them. And then her worst nightmare is a giant bear. Although, as we said, everyone has two bears living inside of them. Again, this movie could go in a lot of really cool directions. It it decides not to. But you could still think about them, and that's fun. (laughs) Fun to imagine. I often feel that way watching like the newest Star Wars movies. I'm like, oh, look at all the places this could have gone and didn't. Fun to think about that. <laughs> I I remember the exact scene like you just mentioned of what uh, was it, Doctor Reyes or Ileana? Somebody said something about like exactly how Danny's power works and that it like you know reveals your dark darkest secret and your worst nightmare. And I thought huh, how would this power work on someone without a tragic backstory? Because the yeah. movie never shows us that. And I I think, yeah, it could have been really cool to see, like like what you said, like if the power was used on Dr. Reyes, but the movie just doesn't do that and instead goes for the, the third act of them fighting the giant CG demon bear. Hell. But... <laughs> It's interesting thinking about the power in concept, but in in practice, I I do wonder like what what sort of more applications could it have? Let's get into the behind the scenes drama of this. So the director Josh Brune puts out The Fault in Our Stars in 2014. That movie, by the way, also at Fox, 12 million budget, 307 million. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like in terms of uh, return on investment. A gigantic hit. Wow. So off of the buzz of that, he signs his next project, which is making a movie out of The Stand, the Stephen King novel, at Warner Brothers. Then he says that he's going to make it into a series of four films. Then Warner Brothers says that it's not happening. In 2015, Boone and Nate Lee put together a treatment for a trilogy of new mutant films. 
And this treatment was made entirely of panels from the comics, primarily from the Demon Bear saga that Emmett mentioned. So there were they didn't write anything at all. They just like made a story out of taking a bunch of different panels and creating a new story for a trilogy of movies. And they sent that over to Simon Kinberg. And then Fox signed them to do it in May of 2015. In 2016, after the success of Deadpool, Fox was like, oh yeah, X-Men movies can be unique. Let's do a horror movie. And they were excited for it, and this like gets made. Now, there are two big drafts of this movie. So this is the first one that gets written off of the green light. I've called it the apocalypse draft. I think this might clarify some questions we had about some things in this movie. The pitch for this movie, uh, the apocalypse draft of it, was that it's uh, Stephen King meets John Hughes. It is set in 1986, three years after Apocalypse. It has the same general idea and characters. It has Nat Wolf from The Fault in Our Stars playing Sunspot, the Charlie Heaton character. It has James McAvoy as Professor X in a leading role involved somehow in this story. It has Storm, who was still evil at the end of Apocalypse, as their warden, who is tormenting them and making sure they stay inside the asylum at all times. It has Ilana's brother, Colossus, coming in at one point. The villain was Demon Bear, who was like more of its own full-on entity, mm-hmm. which Josh Brune said was very personal for him because he was raised by evangelical Southern Baptist parents and comes from like a very... Uh, religious fire and brimstone background, which there is a lot of religious themes in this movie too. Mm-hmm. The post credit scene for the movie, so there's all this Essex Corp stuff that we've seen. We see it in Apocalypse, that they're the guys in the post credits who come and clean it up. We see in Logan that the company that's keeping all the kids in cages is Essex Corp. That's what we see in this movie is her supervisor and is... The facility that they can go to is that facility we see in Logan. Uh, It's also in the first Deadpool. So they are threading this thing throughout all of these movies. And it was going to build up to the post credit scene of this, where you see John Hamm as Mr. Sinister, the head of Essex Corp. And he was then going to be the villain in the Channing Tatum Gambit movie that they tried for 10 years to get him going. That's what it was all building to. Wait, this was all building to a Channing Tatum Gambit movie with John Hamm as the lead? Yes, as the bad guy. I want to see John Hamm in the the post credit scene so bad, but alas. <laughs> that for me clarified like the weirdness that this movie feels like it takes place in the 80s. But then uh, Sunspot has Beats headphones. So yeah, you're like, like, oh, I guess it doesn't. I guess they must have just thrown that and like two other things into this movie to make it not the eighties, because that makes sense with the way the computers look too. They look like old timey futuristic. They're only watching VHSs. Yeah. They've got Buffy, the vampire slayer, which I guess isn't eighties, but still like they've got older references on the thing. Huh? What's the other draft of it? So after the failure of apocalypse, Fox got cold feet about connecting anything to the X-Men and about setting anything in the 80s, uh, and also about making a full-on horror movie. Hmm. Now we get the next draft, which I've called the Inferno Draft. This is largely the draft that gets shot, although things get 
taken out. It has no connections with the X-Men whatsoever. It's set in the modern day. A major character is Warlock, who is entirely CGI and is played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Unbelievable. The post credit scene reveals Emmanuel de Casta, Sunspot's rich father, who we hear about in this movie, as being played by Antonio Banderas. This was setting up for a three for a trilogy. The sequel was going to be called The New Mutants Brazil, was going to have Antonio Banderas as the bad guy, focus a lot on Sunspot. It was going to focus on Warlock, the character that was originally in this, and the character of Karma, who was uh-huh. also going to be the bad guy of the movie, but joined the team at the end. That's all. That was the pitch for the second movie. And the pitch for the third movie was Inferno, which was going to be crossing over with the Dark Phoenix cast. So this was like the crossover movie that they filmed stuff to lead into in this and Dark Phoenix and took it out of both of them. Wow. Boone said that this movie was supposed to be a rubber reality horror movie. The second one would be an alien invasion movie. And the third would be a supernatural apocalyptic horror. Interesting. Fox demanded a PG-13 rating and they asked Boone to remove a lot of the scares and blood. They hired like a dozen writers to do a dozen different drafts of this Holy to hell. try and like make it into something workable and something that wasn't a full on hair horror movie. All of them aren't credited, but it includes the writers of Logan, the fault in our stars and the conjuring. What a combo. Boone got to keep his job because he like worked with Fox through all of this and like humored all of this. But it says like the pattern was he would get a new draft. He would take out everything that wasn't his. And then they would hire someone else. And that just repeated until right before filming was about to start. They had an intervention and like called all of these guys together and they made him sit through and read the script. And all of these guys would be like, that doesn't make sense. He would just like defend it because he was very enthusiastic. Oh man. That's awesome. Rosario Dawson, Ahsoka herself was originally cast as Dr. Reyes dropped out right before filming. So Alice Braga was a late minute addition. Uh, Warlock got cut out of the script for being too expensive. It filmed July to September 2017 in Boston, aiming for an April 2018 release. Everything you see in the movie was filmed in that one shoot. Boone directed it all himself, but he said he felt neutered because he wasn't allowed to do his own horror movie. And Simon Kinberg was shooting dark phoenix and was like not really involved with the production of this at all so boone delivers his cut of the movie to fox they're pretty happy about it they agree to give him what he asked for which was three days of reshoots to like fix small continuity problems in the film before that happens based on the humongous fall 2017 success of it chapter one Mm -hmm. at the box office fox cuts a trailer of this movie that makes it look like a straight-up horror movie if you watch, have seen this movie, watch the original trailer for it because it's wild. It is all footage from the movie except for the main big moment of the trailer, which was also the poster, which is like this wall of hands coming out at her, which isn't in the movie, bizarrely. Everything else is, but they have like put it in black and white and set it to a slow children's choir version of Pink Floyd. And have like all these sweeping shots of all the gravestones. Like it looks like a full on horrific horror movie. Audiences respond to it really positively and everyone is very excited for it. And then Fox says, 
actually, let's reshoot the whole film to make it a full-on horror. And they moved the release to February 2019, giving Boone what he asked for in the first place. This is like another thing that sounds to me like the Deadpool thing where they leaked the test footage of the movie and everyone was like, oh, we love that. And then Fox was like, oh, yeah, actually, we'll make that. When it's like what they wanted to make in the beginning. (laughs) This is like exactly the same thing where he keeps asking to do something. They don't let him do it. And then everyone loves it. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's do it. So those reshoots never happened because this was like a young cast who was in a lot of things. The release got moved to August 2019 because Dark Phoenix was supposed to come out in February. But it just sits on a shelf, like a rough cut of it with unfinished effects, sits on a shelf for two years. And nothing happens with it. Boone isn't working on it. They never come back and do the reshoots. It's just there while sort of like public curiosity about this movie is mounting because it keeps being longer and longer since they saw that trailer that looked good. And everyone is like, what is happening with this movie? In 2019, when Disney finishes buying Fox, they're not impressed with the film. They know that the reshoots won't happen. So they ask Boone if he will come on and like finish his cut of the film of what was filmed and keep in mind he never even got his like three days that he wanted to make that cut into like a workable thing but he agrees he pauses work on the stand and he comes over and they finish the visual effects and he this is like his cut of the movie because for a long time he was like i'm not involved with it i don't know what's happening with it and he has said that like this is like of what he got to film this is what he wanted to do with it they put out a new trailer that is like more accurate to what the movie is and also sort of focuses on the action stuff at the end. It's set to come out in April 2020. Then in March, and I, and I remember at the beginning of last year, everyone being like, this is the year New Mutants is actually going to come out. Like, isn't that wild that in April we'll be in a movie theater watching the New Mutants? <laughs> Nothing could stop it. pandemic <laughs> shuts down all movie theaters. And Disney just desperately wants to drop this thing onto Hulu or Disney Plus, but it's in the contract, in the merger, that it has to come out in theaters as it was intended to before they bought Fox. So they release it. The second theaters open back up, they don't let anyone see it, and they just drop it out there. And the nail in the coffin for all of this is that on like the digital and the DVD release, the only special feature is a commentary for it, which is with the director, Josh Boone, and the New Mutants artist, Bill Sinowitz, where Josh Boone just interviews the artist about his work drawing the New Mutants comics and never once mentions the movie. And at like one wow. point, Bill is like, well, I, I like the movie. I think it's pretty good. And Boone like, won't even acknowledge that it was made. Just ask him a different question <laughs> about what it was like working on these comics in the 80s and 90s. That's crazy. So that's, yeah. that's the whole sordid story. That's incredible. I, I remember when the, the movie was first pitched as like a horror movie. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, that looks cool. I want to watch that. And then... We didn't hear about it for quite some time. Um, so hearing that this film had quite possibly the worst luck ever in terms of like just 
it kept getting pushed back, especially like near the end. It's like, oh, oh yeah. Well, now we've got to finish the Disney Fox merger. Now, you know, the pandemic's happening and, you know, now, now it's out. But it really feels like it went through it, you know, to put it lightly. Um, oh, well, I guess we should also briefly mention this. The other controversy about this movie was casting Henry Zaga as Sunspot. Because in the comics, uh, the character is Afro-Brazilian. And it's like important to his character because he's his mutant powers trigger as the victim of a hate crime. Um, I did like a little research about this. I guess this is like a big issue in Brazil is that there is a lot of racial tension between light skinned and dark skinned Brazilians, which is what happens in the comics. He's a dark skinned Brazilian who gets attacked. There was a lot of controversy online uh, when cast they cast the actor who is Brazilian is light skinned in the role. Boone said, my goal was to find the best actor who, because they've done so little work, was at least the closest to what I saw in my head for the character. There was nobody who we saw who could hold a candle to Henry. I didn't care so much about the racism I've heard about in Brazil, about light-skinned versus dark-skinned. To me, I wanted to represent Brazil in a positive way, and I wanted to find somebody who seems like he could look like a guy who's had the silver spoon in his mouth, who has a really rich dad, and Henry just exemplified all these things i sort of defy anybody who wants to say that henry's not a good roberto simply because he's light-skinned i feel like there's a lot to unpack there yeah yeah okay i call bs first off anytime anybody's like oh well we just couldn't find an actor of like whatever particular backgrounds you know that like that it's specifically supposed to be based on you know Mm -hmm. this whether this was a play script or whether it was a like based off a comic where it's a certain uh, racial or ethnic background. Yeah. I think that's BS. You know, I think you can find an actor who's actually of of that background. Well, he's not even saying they did it. He's just saying that he thought Henry was better than everyone they saw who was dark skinned Brazilian. I mean, and because he's equated, I mean, because it sounds to me like he's equating light skin with reading as privileged, which is true, but I think that's all. There's also like, you know, there's some there's some thing with that because like if he's a rich kid who also happens to be dark skinned, I don't think that should be like a weird thing. You know, like yeah. I don't think he should not be cast on that. That seems like a weird thing to not cast over. But he's also good in this movie, so I wouldn't say like he shouldn't be in a movie. So we all agree that Danny is the protagonist of this movie, mm-hmm. right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. What do we think she wants in this movie? It's weird because I I don't think she really wants anything for the majority of the movie, at least. It's just sort of like generally there is a feeling of, oh, I want to get out of here. Barring like the the opening, like first half of the movie where she's like running and like trying to get out of the dome and like uh, attempts suicide Uh, outside of those initial events. There isn't really any concerted effort to get out. It's just sort of like, oh, we'll go through the therapy program uh, and talk about our feelings and then we'll get out. Yeah, I think she wants to process the trauma of her family dying, which leads to it's just sometimes not a very active want or at least doesn't lead her necessarily always to be a very active protagonist in this film. But I do think that's what she's trying to do. And she does like kind of wander along because at the beginning of the film, that really crushes her. 
And then as she begins to find new purpose in like discovering who she is and like unpacking all of that. I don't know. Although I guess she never really does come to terms with the fact that she killed her family. So who's to say? Yeah, because it's never even spelled out that that was the demon bear attacking. And that was because she had an episode and she fell asleep. Like that's something that we extrapolate, but is never said in the movie. I mean, the only thing that she's able to do, the only thing we gain at the end is that she would be able to control that from prevent it from happening again, but not that she really had come to terms with that. She had done it or like what that meant for her character you know this is also the only movie i've ever seen where someone's home is under attack they get knocked out they wake up in a strange place with a strange person who tells them that everyone else died and that is true (laughs) yeah like in every other movie that leads to like a big reveal that like the whole world is there outside and they like in every other movie, there's a twist that everyone else is alive. And in this movie, oh, yeah. you just never get anything like that. No, because they're really all dead. <laughs> oh my God. I guess. This movie does pass the Bechdel test with flying colors. Only six characters. Four of them are women. And not even um, not even a, a love triangle at all. Very good in Bechdel standards. Emmett, do you have a body count for this movie? I think it's like two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think straight up, it is her dad at the beginning. I mean, we know that people in her village die, but I don't know. You don't really see any of them. You see explosions and stuff, but it's hard to see like anybody actually die there. So a couple people there, her dad, and then the doctor at the very end. Also the priest and the slender men. Yeah, but I don't count them specifically because they're not like, they're not real. They're image projections. They're not even like real monsters. I mean, I guess the priest. Well, that's got to be the lowest of any of these movies, right? Yeah, I think so. The horror movie <laughs> with the lowest <laughs> body count. Uh, it's time to pick our MVP, OTW, our most valuable player other than Wolverine, <laughs> who does not appear in this movie. I will say this maybe was because of just recently watching The Mandalorian, but at the end when they're like, something showed up on the scanners and it's like getting closer. Like it really feels like they're building to a big X-Men cameo that like someone has come to Uh, save the day. I think it just was the bear coming up to attack instead of someone saving them. Patrick, who is your MVP OTW? Gotta say Maisie Williams as Rain Sinclair, uh, Wolfsbane. Uh, She, Gives the best performance, I'd say, uh, is the emotional core of the film, as I said earlier. Easily, easily my favorite part. Uh, I, I enjoyed watching like pretty much every scene she was in. So Yeah, I agree. Emmett, MVP, OTW. My MVP, OTDM, is going to be uh, Anya Taylor-Joy as Magic or Ileana Rasputin. Um, just weird, just iconic. You hate her, and then at some point, inexplicably, you love her. And then she kicks some ass, and it becomes apparent that she is the most powerful of all of these people. Pretty wild. And I think, Wade, you're right. We will come back to look at this as like a cult classic performance by an actress that we will love for a very long time. Uh, Wade, who is your MVP OTDM? Mine is Alice Braga as Dr. Reyes, who I think does a good job in like 
what could easily be a really underwritten personality list character. But I think she like nails it the whole time. And I think because this cast is so small, mm-hmm. if any of them are not entertaining to watch, then it would be just like such a drag. And in these X-Men movies, there are so many boring villains, but she like manages to have some personality and some sort of driving force. I mean, it feels like we have more of an idea of where she's coming from than like Sunspot or some of the other characters, you know? Yeah. It feels like we haven't even really like delved into the weirdness of this movie. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just like, it's hard to wrap your head around. Patrick, what are some of your final thoughts on the only X-Men movie, (laughs) The New Mutants? I think it's a it's a very entertaining movie. I mean, yeah, like I said, I watched it twice. And it was not really boring to sit through either times. I do think like the the opening act is like maybe eh, not not super solid all the time. Uh and like the second act where all the teen mutants are just having fun and getting to know each other and developing their characters is like easily the strongest part of the movie. And then it it closes out with them fighting uh, a giant bear, but I I think I think overall it's pretty fun. It just like doesn't live up to the potential that it really could have. Emmett, any final thoughts? Watch this movie. Ten out of ten. Would recommend. Uh, would watch again. Wish it was better. Can't really expect much more from the X Men series at this point. It makes me think of so many other better movies while I'm watching it that the experience of it is kind of just like to me a semi like a pastiche of references to better things, which is sometimes even more enjoyable. Because if I was going to watch one of those better things, I'd only really get that at a time, as opposed to like fifteen of them all at once. Wade, any final thoughts? You really hit on something there. Like this movie is like a collection of influences, but it doesn't bring anything original to it. And they're so mismatched that like, that is really why I think it fails is that like, it's just like ideas from Mean Girls and ideas from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and ideas from The Shining, like put together in a movie but those things don't match and there's nothing like original being contributed to glue them together a a really weird movie a really weird note to end on in terms of the whole series but also i don't think we've talked about what i liked about this movie which is like the weird teen drama stuff Mm -hmm. like that's the stuff that i think is directed the best in terms of sort of like the romance between these characters. And they are all dealing, uh, dealing with very like angsty teen issues like religion and sex and body acceptance and mm-hmm. their relationships with each other mm-hmm. and trauma. Like, and coal mining. <laughs> all of those things are floated around in this bizarre movie and not like fully explored. <laughs> not even not even really they dip a toe into each and then they're like oh that's cold i'm gonna go somewhere else <laughs> i think really it's emblematic of sort of the the hollywood typical treatment of of teens and that it's it sort of touches on real experiences but in the most 
weird and like not realistic way possible well said well thank you for joining us patrick of course um, it's an honor are there uh any projects you want to plug while you're here anywhere the people can find you online um really just my humble youtube channel uh sandwich industry yeah other than that i i have no projects i <laughs> Uh, only watch this movie on repeat. That's all I do. Um, <laughs> what what uh, sort of YouTube videos do you make at your website? Well, um, particularly my my best and favorite work is a 15-minute review on the movie Airbud, uh, which, much like this movie, is a cult classic, I believe. That's great. It's a great video. We couldn't recommend it higher. <laughs> I think that video is a cult classic that means that video will be the donnie darko of your generation (laughs) (laughs) oh man well we did it emmett as adele would say believe it this is the end this is the end my friend we'll be back on friday with a very short little episode very special where we're going to uh rank our personal rankings of these movies and we're going to be announcing our next mini series which is going to start on tuesday big secret you can't wait to find out what these boys are doing next very excited for that peace be with you all and uh until next time remember that there are two bears inside each of us Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.